Hey everybody, welcome to Season 2, Episode 7 of the Compact Nation Podcast. I'm J.R. Jamison, Executive Director of Indiana Campus Compact. And I'm Andrew Sellingson, President of Campus Compact. And today it will just be the two of us. Our other co-host, Emily Shields, is off on important Campus Compact business and can't be with us today. So Andrew and I are going to entertain each other and hopefully you by having a good conversation about strengthening democracy and the health of our society. But first, I want to start with where in the world is Andrew? Well, today I am in Boston and I have been a bunch of places recently. So uh, earlier this week, or I guess it was last week, I'm losing track of the day, I spent a few days in Washington, D.C. as part of a summit of leaders from a bunch of different groups interested in advancing the, the role of service here in our country. So the Service Here Alliance pulled together a group of folks from government, from the military service, from uh, national service organizations, from folks like us who mobilize National Service Corps and, and others to think about how we can work together to make National Service a norm and an expectation for young people in the country and how we can also move forward an agenda to actually create enough service here opportunities so that everybody who wants to can serve either in military or civilian service. Uh, so that was a really interesting meeting. I was glad to be there. And obviously with our you know, hundreds strong Vista Corps and AmeriCorps members in campus compacts across the country. It's really important for us to continue to support uh, that movement. So that was that was a great meeting to be at. Then I was up in Maine, just north of here, Portland, Maine, spent a day with Maine Campus Compact and the University of Southern Maine, uh, meeting with some presidents and other institutional leaders, faculty and staff, uh, and really kind of engaging in very good conversations about where we are right now in the country and how institutions can be upping their game to respond to the conditions around us. Uh, so that was, uh, yeah, both really interesting places to be. That's exciting. I had the opportunity to go to Campus Compact for Southern New England's conference last week on creating space. And it, too, was an opportunity for all voices to be heard from a student-led perspective. And so all of these conferences together, I feel like, is a nice segue into our discussion today. I know, at least for me, anytime I turn on the TV or I'm scrolling through my Twitter feed, I feel like our nation is at its most divided. And I often feel like maybe we won't ever have consensus again. And I know that I'm probably not alone in that feeling, although I know there are so many organizations and people out there doing really great work to combat that, including Campus Compact. So I just want to start with how are we as an organization responding to the climate? Yeah, it's a good question uh, because we need to be. So uh, figuring out how we are and whether we're doing enough and whether we're doing the right things, that's certainly constantly on my mind. You know, one thing that we've been doing lately that is different from what we've done before, I've talked a little bit about on previous episodes, and that is our Fund for Positive Engagement. And so that is a, a program where we've been able to provide small grants to 40 campuses, members of Campus Compact all across the country. I think they represent uh, 28 different states, uh, every institution type. There are public and private, two-year, four-year, large and small, and rural, urban, suburban, pretty much every sort of institution we have. And, you know, we, we really uh, were looking to fund small projects that 
represented some kind of an experimental response uh, and experimental, not in any formal sense, just in the sense of trying something, people trying things to bridge divides, to bring people together, to foster dialogue, to foster greater understanding across the kinds of differences that are now causing so much conflict, whether ideological differences or differences in ethnicity and religion or in immigration status or a whole number of other things. And you know, I was excited by the level of interest, that is to say, to see that so many people want to bring people together on their campuses and in their communities. It was also at the same time disturbing to see how many people really feel that need in an acute way right now. So we had applications from about 300 campuses and the, you know, the, the situations that people were describing that they want to address were all things you would want to help people address, but you would wish in many cases they just weren't happening in the first place, whether they involved hate incidents or just a level of toxicity in the relationships across groups uh, that prevent any kind of meaningful conversation. So, you know, a, a lot of what we're doing is uh, learning from the kinds of efforts that the folks involved in this project are undertaking. We've been working with a group called Civil Politics, which was founded by Jonathan Haidt, um, folks who are expert in uh, helping us assess the degree to which good things are happening through these projects, whether people are changing the way they think uh, and look at others and, and talk to others and experience uh, kind of connection with others. Uh, so that's that's one thing that we've been doing. Uh, we We certainly hope to be able to grow and continue that project over time because I, you know, again, we we hope to learn a lot from it and be able to encourage folks to replicate practices. But we also don't imagine that the need for this is going away anytime soon. Mm -hmm. How many of the projects, you know, off the top of your head were are student led or are they mostly faculty, staff initiated? They're almost all faculty and staff initiated. Some of that is probably just because of the time frames. So the mm -hmm. call for proposals went out uh, pretty late in the academic year, and then the uh, applications were due over the summer. And you know, we because we were working on a pretty short time horizon because of the way the funding worked and those kinds of things, things needed to get off the ground quickly. So I think there wasn't as much opportunity as might have been perfect for student-led projects, although in, in principle we were open to them. Many of the teams, though, uh, organizing the projects do include students. So I think many people, you know, faculty or staff saw the announcement, were interested in doing it, had students they were already working with or, you know, thought would be good to work with on different kinds of efforts and were able to include them. So we do have, you know, some diversity in roles, faculty, staff, and also, uh, you know, the involvement of community partners as well and also students. Yeah, I'm really excited to see the outcomes from this. Have most folks started their projects or are their program start dates like in the spring semester? Most of them are more kind of gearing up right now and heading into, yeah, the actual kind of activities happening in the spring. Um, and, you know, in a lot of cases, it's about kind of recruiting folks to participate or just making plans Many of the projects, almost all of them have some role for dialogue in particular. So they often are kind of using different strategies to get people together, whether it's uh, coming together around some kind of cultural programming 
uh, coming together around breaking bread uh, or kind of other experiences, you know, usually the goal is then to get people talking together, which makes sense that kind of in the end, that's a key thing that needs to happen. Um, in many cases, you know, informed by um, sort of local traditions or local realities um, and, you know, kind of with a distinctive stamp of an institution. But then there are also a lot of um, a lot of the projects are kind of taking advantage of national models for dialogue that are out there so that they're they're seeking to bring something to their campus for a particular purpose. But they are drawing on, you know, well-developed approaches to facilitating different kinds of dialogue, whether deliberative dialogue aimed at kind of making progress on addressing some sort of a, a specific policy question or uh, dialogue more aimed at just deepening understanding across groups. So we have, uh, you know, again, many different approaches represented. And, and we think that's great because it gives us the opportunity to see which kinds of things do seem to yield positive results. What else are we doing to strengthen democracy in the health of society? I know we have a ton of, of, of uh, projects and, and uh, events coming up. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, a lot of what we are doing that is uh, new in the last few years was conceptualized in just this way. So when when we sat down with folks across our network, and including you, uh, to think about the future of our network in the context of our 30th anniversary, what emerged from those conversations was a big focus on kind of these two colossal changes in American society, the, the deepening of inequality and the uh, explosion of polarization and its sort of pervasiveness in our experience. And this all was in 2015, before the election cycle of, of 2016 had really gotten underway. And so, you know, again, we've been thinking along these lines uh, for quite, you know, several years. And uh, maybe there's been an intensification of focus in these things. So a couple different efforts that are related to that. One is the emergence for us of a focus on credentialing for community engagement professionals. So this is a body of work that right now is being led by our director of professional learning, Danielle Leak, who joined us uh, last January. And the effort really focuses on the idea that if we have uh, really important work to do through our community engagement professionals on campuses, as we think we do, if the challenge is growing around us, again, as inequality and polarization uh, just kind of uh, gain steam around us, then we really need to continue to build the capacity of the people leading, coordinating, structuring, facilitating the work of democracy on our campuses. And that really is the community engagement professionals who you know, build civic learning programs, who support community engaged research, who frequently uh, train faculty in developing courses and curricula and who you know are often the bridge between the campus and communities beyond the campus to engage all sorts of folks who can do things that that have a positive public impact so we we've begun this uh, this effort to build a credentialing program we think the first pieces of it will be ready for people to undertake starting in the spring and the idea was really to identify what are the competencies that a professional in this field needs in order to do the work well and effectively and again at a level commensurate with the challenges around us and then 
uh, how can we provide them the opportunity to learn those things, to build those competencies, and also to demonstrate that they have done so. So the, the model that we've been developing uh, involves a set of uh, competencies that as people demonstrate them, they can earn uh, what are known kind of in the business, uh, the credentialing world as digital badges or micro-credentials. Uh, and all of that would build toward a professional certification as a higher education community engagement professional. And, you know, again, the idea is to recognize the, the expertise, the competence of those who have already built it in various areas to enable people to identify areas where they need to go further and then to be able to have a, a way to signal to, for example, people doing hiring that, you know, these are people who have built their capacities in specific areas or, or demonstrated their overall uh, expertise as uh, a professional in the field. And we, we really expect that while we will play the role of kind of framing the, the program, that other organizations, higher education institutions, uh, community-based organizations, others uh, who are maybe parallel to us working with folks in higher ed, that they will be the ones offering many of the learning experiences, also our state and regional compacts. And that, you know, in other words, there's no assumption that we at Campus Compact have all the knowledge that everybody else needs. The idea is to say, we want to create a framework through which people can build their knowledge uh, and, and have that recognized in the field. Is there an endpoint to the credentialing, meaning if an individual goes through this process, are there so many steps before they're completely credentialed or is this an ongoing process? It's, it's a little bit of both, I would say. So the idea is when you earn the complete set of micro-credentials, uh, and we think right now, again, there's some final details to be worked out, but we expect that'll be a set of about 12. Uh, and, and they are in kind of areas like what we've been talking about, you know, competency in supporting civic and democratic learning, competency in uh, understanding kind of the role of a university in community economic development, for example. So areas like that, that we think community engagement professionals need to understand. So when you do the complete set, then you'd have an opportunity through a portfolio review process to demonstrate your overall uh, sort of preparedness as a community engagement professional. That would then earn you a professional certification. So in a way, that's the end point. But as in most fields that have certification, there would also be uh, a need for uh, periodic recertification and continuing learning in order to maintain the certification, as well as opportunities to participate as a professional, for example, in the ongoing review of others seeking the certification and in mentoring others who are in that position. So part of the idea is you kind of get this continuous process going because one of the things we really want to do through this is not only recognize individuals and encourage learning as individuals, but also help to build a kind of ongoing learning community of community engagement professionals so that people are connected to each other through the opportunity to learn and build professional capacity, but then also that they are able to serve the, the, the whole by deploying their expertise to help others continue to move along and by playing this necessary role of reviewing the work of others uh, as they seek credentials, certification, et cetera. So um, there is kind of a, you know, a target to shoot at the professional certification, 
but we expect that that's a point along a continuum. And we're not just strengthening the strengthening the bond with faculty and and staff, especially CEPs around the credential lane, but we're also helping empower and mobilize students. Do you want to talk a little bit about the Newman Civic Fellows? Yeah, that is uh, some of the, the the most fun we have around here is the opportunity to connect directly with students through the Newman Civic Fellowships. So, you know, the basic structure of the program is that each of our member presidents and chancellors in Campus Compact has the opportunity each year to nominate one student for the Newman Civic Fellowship. And, and campuses can decide how they identify that student. In some cases, it's done through a formal selection process internally. In other cases, especially smaller institutions, the president may just really know personally a lot of the students very involved in community-engaged work. So each year they can nominate one. And from that, we create this cohort of Newman Civic Fellows. So this year we have 273 from all across the United States, again, representing the great diversity of our institutions and really representing the great diversity of our country. This is a group of students, uh, yeah, that are just in every respect uh, represent that diversity. There's age diversity. We have both undergraduate and graduate students. We also have many students who are non-traditional students. Uh, again, all sorts of institutional um, characteristics. Uh, the demographics of the students are, are quite a wide range. So it's a really great group to come together. And, you know, we see them as playing a number of roles. One, one is just for themselves, really having an opportunity to learn. We have online learning opportunities in about 10 days. They'll all be descending on us here in Boston. We're, we're excited about it for our annual conference of the Newman Civic Fellows that happens at the Edward M. Kennedy Institute for the U.S. Senate. They participate in a Senate simulation. They are engaged in other kinds of learning about, again, listening to others, negotiating across difference, working together to solve problems. So there's, there's a learning opportunity for them. They also uh, are building this network. You know, they are meeting others in, uh, with their you know, shared commitment to bettering communities and to be part of solving public problems. And uh, so we're excited about that. We have no idea where that leads, but that's sort of the point is to create the opportunity for them to build. And, you know, we start hope as we've got a sort of growing group of, of these fellows and then alumni fellows, we hope to, you know, create opportunities for uh, connections between and across these years, these cohorts. And then also we've already begun to take advantage of the voice that these students can provide within the Campus Compact Network. So just as one example, when we reviewed applications for the Fund for Positive Engagement, the Newman Civic Fellows uh, were on those review teams so that we had a student perspective about these proposals, most of which really were aimed directly at engaging students. So this gave us a kind of on the ground reality check from the perspective of students, uh, you know, about which of these projects seem promising and and had legs. Uh, so again, you know, from my perspective, th these students have been sort of pre-identified as being deeply committed to community. So the more we can engage them, build their skills, uh, enable them to provide leadership both back on their own campuses and beyond, uh, I think we're just, you know, that's just a, a contribution we can make uh, that, again, we, we don't know where it leads, but I think having this group activated, connected, uh, and getting increasingly sort of prepared, uh, that, that can only lead to good things.
Yeah, and it's been great here in Indiana to tap into our Newman Civic Fellows to help us with our events and serve on panels and such. And to go to the Midwest Campus Compact Gathering that happened last summer at Loyola and seeing all of the Midwest Newman Civic Fellows together, um, it just was really great to see see that happening. I know there's an argument. Yeah. The, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, no, I totally agree with you that uh, as soon as we started doing things where we actually brought these students together, um, it was one of those things where we knew it was a good idea, you know, because the the excitement they have for meeting and learning from each other, but also just like immediately the kind of accountability they provide for us, you know, that they want to know that we're serious about the commitments we're making, about the the values we articulate. And, um, and I think that's really powerful. And the more we can um, continue to incorporate them into us as a network, I think the stronger we'll be. And the nominations are open now, right? For next year? They or... are. That is a great point. Yes, you can go to compact.org and um, first of all, learn about you know current group. Uh, we've got bios up uh, for the, the students who are participating, the statements that their nominators made, and uh, and then also learn about the nomination process for this year, and I would say, you know, if you're a president or chancellor, uh, you should nominate. And if you are on a campus and you don't happen to be the president or chancellor, you should bring this to their attention. Again, we have a lot, but there's many more campuses that are eligible who are not yet participating. And, um, you know, we'll be challenged to figure out how to accommodate it if the group grows to 500 or 1,000, but that would be a problem we'd love to have. Yeah, it's a great opportunity to be with other leaders in the field. So there's an ongoing argument in the field around uh, the work of community engagement and how we can't really talk about the work of community engagement unless we're also talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. We've been doing some to really shift our conversation that way. Can you talk a little bit about, um, beyond the programs we've already talked about that now includes all of these pieces, some more efforts that are being put into place to focus on these three areas? Yeah, and you know, maybe to, to start, I just want to echo the point that you just made and say a little bit more about how I see that. That is that the, the reason for our focus on equity and inclusion is precisely because we have from the beginning been an organization committed to healthy, sustainable, just democracy. That, you know, essentially what democracy means is each person having an equal opportunity to, uh, the way I think about it is to shape the future of their community. That's to me what it means uh, to be in a democracy. And, and that means there really has to be equal voice, opportunity for full participation by all. And you can't really have that if people are being excluded from educational opportunities or if they're being excluded from the, uh, you know, the kinds of health and nutritional foundations that one needs to really be able to fully participate in one's community effectively. And so for us, it's not, this isn't a kind of side issue. It's right in the middle. If we are going to genuinely advance our uh, mission, which is to ensure that higher education is contributing maximally to a strong democracy, we can't not think about uh, equity and inclusion as a central part of this work. And I think, you know, partly it's taken 
students uh, making us kind of come to terms with that directly. I think the, the powerful student movements for racial justice and equity in the last few years on campuses across the United States have, again, forced many of us to focus on this issue in ways that perhaps we didn't to the extent we needed to before. And and again, that's led us to uh, to kind of some new places. So getting back around to the, the question you asked, you know, I think one thing we've seen is really great work coming out of a number of our state and regional compacts focused on this issue. So, uh, so you know, some of these I think we may have mentioned before on the podcast, but, you know, in this context, Oregon Campus Compact has been putting this issue front and center in the agenda for institutions in Oregon, helping to develop capacity of senior leaders, for example, to think through and talk about in very direct ways, racial justice issues, the histories of exclusion that have attended higher education institutions, the kinds of things that higher education institutions can do to make change uh, you know, on the ground. Um, we've seen uh, efforts uh, in Minnesota grounded in um, the, the sort of conception they used as cultural agility, bringing people together to work effectively in an inclusive way in the context of diversity, but also, you know, histories of inequality. And I think that the Twin Cities, for example, have been spending a lot of time, generally people there coming to terms with the fact that while that area has had very high levels of civic participation, they've had also very high levels of inequality and segregation. So, you know, the compact has been playing a role in bringing people together to think about how do you move from uh, that reality to one that is genuinely full participation that combines civic participation, but also a focus on equality and equity. So, you know, I think we've seen some great uh, efforts at that level. And one of the things we're kind of about to begin, we're just about complete with the process of hiring a new vice president for network leadership who will have a central role in driving forward our focus on equity and inclusion, both within our network and in the ways we support uh, this kind of work for our member institutions. And so I think for us, there are changes ahead that we we don't know about quite yet. Um, but but the idea is to say, how can we ensure that in the work we're doing, not only are we an equitable and inclusive organization, but we are specifically focused on helping institutions answer the question about how their community engagement work can be directed most effectively at making the communities they're connected to and their own campuses more equitable and inclusive. I think it's such an important dialogue for us to be having right now and to be moving that way. And I have to just say, um, cheers. I, I applaud you so much for moving us that way as an organization. When we look toward the future, what, what do you think is our greatest challenge facing us when it comes to us as a field? Well, um, I see a few things as big challenges. I think one is all of the ways that higher education is challenged. So, you know, I think the the continuing uh, defunding of higher education by state governments, um, you know, I think um, if you look at right now, you know, who knows what will have been the case by the time people hear this, but right now there's a tax bill that's just been proposed in the Congress and it targets higher education. I would say it's the first 
example I've seen of a tax bill that looks like it's partly intended to weaken higher education and people's access to it. Kind of a strange thing to put in a tax bill, but there we are. Uh, so I think the, the challenges to uh, higher education continue to be our challenges because the more institutions are fighting to survive or stay above water or stay afloat, the harder it is for them to focus sometimes on the big questions of the real mission behind the institution, the values they ought to uh, realize in their work. On the other hand, I do think we may be kind of become, because of that, uh, coming sort of to a point of reckoning about the way institutions of higher education have sought to conform to a very narrow conception of what they're all about, you know, a sort of jobs producing or workforce producing uh, focus with little account of what the real importance of higher education is. Because I think that approach has clearly yielded no fruit. And it, it has put us in part in the situation we're in today. And I think there is a growing realization among higher education leaders that kind of rallying to articulate the real case for higher education, its importance in a democracy, its importance in people's lives broadly, in creating a society capable of innovating and solving its own problems, like that has to happen. And I, again, I, I see some uh, return to that realization, I think. Uh, and, and again, at our national conference in March and our summit of presidents and chancellors, that's, that's going to be a central focus is how do we kind of refocus ourselves and others on the public role of higher education and the importance it plays in, in sustaining a self-governing democratic society. Um, so th those are, those are some big things. I would say too that, you know, you asked about the field generally, but as you know, at Campus Compact, we are now really asking this question about ourselves. That is to say, are we built and structured and organized in the ways that are most effective for carrying our mission forward into the future? And part of the reason we're asking that question is because we expect others to ask that question. So we've been running around the country telling our member colleges and universities that they really have to be asking some basic questions about whether they are currently organized, structured, focused in ways that enable them to advance the public purposes of higher education. And so we're really, I think, turning that lens back on ourselves in a healthy way and saying, uh, if we ask others to be prepared to change, then uh, maybe we have to ask ourselves whether we need to change, and if so, how to do that and, and what we're prepared to do to make sure that we continue to be a force for making the case for education for the public good. Mm -hmm. And if folks want to be a part of these broader discussions that the National Conference Registration is open for that uh, to come to Indianapolis. That's true. Yes, we will be uh, heading to meet JR on his turf in, <laughs> uh, in Indianapolis. Uh, we're really looking forward to it. IUPUI will be uh, helping us host that event. For those not in the know, that is Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis. Yep. And we're really uh, grateful for their participation. And yeah, looking forward, Indy is, um, as you know, it's a really nice town. It's and a wonderful it's, town. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, I've been there for other meetings and enjoyed it. And uh, it's convenient to get to from almost everywhere. So we're re I'm really talking this up. But uh, I yes, we 
we need voices in the conversation. We need uh, both institutional leaders to be there so you can, you know, poke your president or chancellor if you're not one, poke yourself if you are one. Um, but also we we need everybody. And so if, if there's an opportunity for you to be there, uh, it would be great to have you as a participant in the conversation. If we have a faculty member or a community engagement professional who's listening to our conversation right now and they're reflecting on what can I do as one person um, in this work, what advice would you have for them? What role they have to play in deepening democracy and strengthening our, our health of society? I would encourage any faculty or staff member who's listening to ask about your institution a couple of questions. One is, is it the case today that every student at your institution for sure experiences learning that builds their capacities as citizens, their preparedness to support the health and strength of their communities in our democracy? Is it the case today that all of the aspects of your institution, the way you admit students, the way you partner with others, the way you purchase products and develop real estate, that all of these aspects are, are being built and executed with a focus on advancing the public good and especially serving communities that have historically been excluded from opportunity. And if the answer to that is not yes, then I think the, the, the next step is maybe there's two. One is figure out who on your campus cares, find allies and start thinking together about how you can build for change. And then the second is really start to look outward for resources, ideas, models, opportunities. We have, you know, through our civic action planning resources, for example, on our website, a lot of information to help people get started. There are campuses all over the United States that have really been uh, taking big steps forward, and you can find some of these and find peers, and we can help you do that. Your state campus compact directors, regional campus compact directors can help with that as well. Uh, so I would say, you know, become sort of take a critical lens toward your institution and then think about how you build for change within the institution. And again, a lot of that will be by connecting outward with organizations like us, the American Democracy Project, you know, uh, Community Campus Partnerships for Health, the Coalition for Urban and Metropolitan Universities, many others, Imagining America right there. So there are a lot of folks doing great work in this area. And I think usually when we make change, it's by finding internal allies, finding external ideas, putting some of that together and starting to make something happen. Fantastic advice and a reminder that we all have a role to play to, in building a democracy. Do you have anything else you'd like to add before we switch to the ever famous pop culture corner? I guess the only thing I would, would add is that, um, you know, the one of the opportunities that is so excellent about Campus Compact is the people we have all over the country and uh, our directors and staff in our offices, uh, state and regional offices around the country. And, you know, I think engaging other folks in this conversation. So if you're in a state with a compact, uh, reaching out and just kind of taking up some of these themes and, and seeing what sorts of ideas your own state or regional director has or staff members you've come into contact with, folks who are involved in leading our national service work in our state and regional compacts. That's you know a group that has really good ideas about how uh, 
our national service programs like VISTA and AmeriCorps can bring real power to community engagement work through campuses. So just, you know, encouraging people to kind of make those contacts or activate them if if you haven't recently. And and again, find the people in your place, in your state, in your city, in your region who are actively thinking about these questions. And, uh, you know, I think that can both help us feel supported in difficult times, but also really give us some practical ideas, advice, thoughts, uh, things to try out that somebody else has succeeded with. Perfect. Well, for Pop Culture Corner, I want to talk about Stranger Things 2. Are you watching this, Andrew? I am not. I keep hearing about it, but so far I have not been drawn in. Oh, what? <laughs> it's a, it, it is... Um... It's amazing. <laughs> I will say that. Um, I I am shocked that you're not drawn in by it. But but anyhow, so Stranger well, Things. I, I might I might be susceptible, so I may go there soon. I mean, it's got a little bit of sci-fi. It's got some mystery. It takes place in the '80s. It's 1984. It's got great music and cars, and uh, it takes place in Indiana. So that was another sell for for me. But Stranger Things. Uh, is a Netflix show and it's released all at once. Season one came out last fall and now season two is released on October 27th. So I've done some binge watching. I have a couple of episodes left. Uh, I won't give any spoilers for those who, who haven't watched it. But I will say that the show does remind me, and I'm making some loose connections here, but does remind me of work and community engagement just because all of the kids in Stranger Things are coming together to combat evil. They're bringing their special talents and answers to questions to contribute to strengthening the town of Hawkins, Indiana, to get rid of the evil that's brewing underneath. And um, there's something about that coming together in Stranger Things that reminds me of the work we do in community engagement for the greater good. So see there, I made a connection to it, but really just wanted to talk about Stranger Things. Well, it's, uh, so as I said, I hope I'll be able to converse <laughs> with you about it sometime soon. Cause I think I am probably going to, uh, jump on board, but, um, I was going to talk about, so I'm a few years behind usually in popular culture, although I did just see a new movie, but it wasn't what I was going to talk about, but I saw the new Blade Runner movie, which I quite liked. Uh, But the thing I was going to talk about was, did you watch Man in the High Castle? No. However, I have heard of the book and I know someone who was watching it. And so I've heard a ton about it. So I can, I can probably have a conversation enough to be dangerous. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, that's good. Actually, one of the things is having just seen the Blade Runner, I just because I started watching Man in the High Castle recently. And um, it's actually just to give you a sense of how sad my life is, JR, when I'm on airplanes and it's like the end of a long day and I'm just too tired to get any work done. uh, I've been watching it on my phone on the airplane. That's that's my experience in Man in the High Castle. Um, But it's it like Blade Runner is based on a book by Philip K. Dick. So I kind of feel like I'm living in his world right now. Mm-hmm. And so the uh, you know, I'm not going to give away too much because I would encourage people to go watch it. It's on I think it's on Amazon Prime that I've been watching it. Um, it's set in I think 1952 is when it begins. And roughly speaking, the premise is that the that we lost World War Two. So we're living in a world where the United States is kind of split between Nazi control on one side of the country and and, uh, Japanese control on the other with the form of government that Japan had before World War II, et cetera. And 
you know, again, it's interesting, just in, in light of what you were saying, what I was thinking about it, well, there were two things. One is the positive, maybe I'll start with the negative, and then mm. I'll go to the, <laughs> the The negative one is, you know, the fact that one question that a lot of characters in this, uh, in the show, you know, are need to be worried about at various times is sort of like, where are the Nazis and what are they up to? Mm. Uh, and, you know, the fact that we have to kind of ask that same question again right now, like, you know, we now in Boston, we've already had and we're about to have another, you know, gathering of um, white supremacists and neo-Nazis. Obviously, that's happened on many campuses, including notably the University of Virginia. So just that fact of like, you know, that, that this thing that seemed like you were writing a counterfactual dystopic history and in fact, here we are again. That is so depressing. Uh, it's hard, you know. And, and this show, I think it, was, it came out in 2014, 2015. I don't think anybody thought that's why they were making this right now. And then all of a sudden, it just has that resonance, which was just uh, really hard to stomach. On the flip side, you know, at least so I'm not that far into it yet, but um, one can see that there is a building resistance movement. And the the idea that people even in the darkest times seek to find ways to connect with other people who share humane values to find evidence of the the continuing capacity of human beings for good and to build from that um you know i think we, we are not in the times like those depicted in this we're not in the kinds of times that europe saw in the 1930s fortunately um, but it is still good to be reminded that even in times much more difficult than our own, people can kind of rally uh, in those ways. And uh, yeah, so hopefully we we do so and we do so in ways that include people who don't already agree with us about everything and we see what we can figure out together. Beautifully stated. I need to check that out. I am familiar with the book. I've not seen the series yet, but you've you've piqued my interest, so I may check it out now. All right. And again, I don't know where it goes. So maybe by the end, I'll be like, oh, that I didn't understand it. That, that was way off. <laughs> and you'll say, you'll say scratch that when you were listening to. Episode yeah, we'll, seven, we'll have right? to have a retraction <laughs> episode. <laughs> but I do think the point of resistance and people coming together, even in the darkest hour, regardless if the show takes a different direction. I think that's a positive outcome that uh, we are starting to see in our own society. And, and I am hopeful that we will see more of. I'm with you. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening to Episode 7 today. We want to remind you to subscribe to the Compact Nation podcast anywhere you can find podcasts. You should rate us, too, because that's really important and helps us. Tell your friends, tell a colleague, and tune in next time. In a couple of weeks, we'll be back with Timothy Schaefer from Kansas State University and from the National Institute for Civil Discourse. He's a longtime listener, but a first-time caller, and we're really excited to have Timothy on next time. <laughs> Excellent. I look forward to it. All right. Thanks a lot, JR. Yep. Thanks, everyone. Season two of the Compact Nation podcast is produced by Naval Mahdi for the Campus Compact headquarters in Boston, Massachusetts, and its 1,100 colleges and universities around the globe. All rights reserved. Learn more about Campus Compact at compact.org. The hosts of the Compact Nation podcast are Emily J. Shields, J.R. Jameson, and Andrew Seligson. 
Recommendations for guests, topics, or general questions can be sent to podcast at compact.org or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag CompactNationPod. The Compact Nation podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us.